0: In the name of Jesus. Ah, go. Watch out for that name. I was about to get all insecure and think, "Man, stop talking me up," because I just I don't want too much of a letdown. But you know what? I'm reading a lot of scripture today, so can't overhype this. Yeah, I wanna I wanna just like ping pong that back on the Guerrero family. I uh. I came to faith in campus ministry. I came to faith in uh, young people that didn't know much, but they knew how to declare, Jesus saved me, and he wants to save you too. And my friend Josh Opie in in Oregon led me to Jesus, and we got to see an evangelistic revival in our high school. I, I come to Texas. And at Texas State, we got to see another little evangelistic revival of students who didn't know any better than to cross cultural barriers and all through different intellectual barriers to to dare to preach Jesus to people. And we had seen this great revival among a a lot of different people. And in this church where I was laboring for years, where where Rachel came to faith and where Josh came to Rachel, uh, we... uh, We'd been seeing a lot of power and people coming to know Jesus and, and baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I was at a point about seven years ago where I was tired. Um, and it wasn't Joshua that was making me tired. Uh, he and I had gr- grown up together in so many ways. And, and he really was at that point like a, uh, a pillar for me in, in friendship. But at this point, I was, I was tired by... The, the unique difficulty of leading a church, it's really weird. It's like you have to be like a business guy working out all the business real estate issues of church life. And then like a lot of your time pastorally, uh, like everyone, you're available to everyone. And then like I was on top of that giving my leftovers to probably the most important task, which is preaching the word of God. And uh, one of the young men, the young men that we trained up to, to take over the church a few years ago in, in San Marcos, uh, Alberto, uh, he was preaching, his early years of preaching, and uh, he, he preached a sermon that wasn't that great, wasn't that great. And he was at my house the next day, and I was like kind of joking with him, kind of teasing him, making fun of uh, the scatteredness of his sermon. But Josh, he was with me. He was not in a joking, you know, uh, mindset he was dead serious and started telling Alberto certain things with a bunch of holiness on it. And then in that moment, the Holy Spirit told me, Peter, this is for you too. And all the things he was saying to young Alberto was for me too. And so here's this man who'd been suffering through all of my sermons for so many years, and I'm sitting here so tired. He's starting to share things about just how to study Scripture. And I'd heard people say, you know the you know axiomatic phrases like uh, you know preach the word and stuff like that, but I didn't have the tools to know how to dig into Scripture. It's what you've probably heard the word hermeneutics. I didn't have certain tools to 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 spend time knowing what the Bible's saying to me, any less filtering what I'm supposed to say to the congregation. And what I learned from a young man sitting under my pulpit ministry, literally revived my love for scripture and for preaching. And for years now, as I've been preparing sermons, and uh, the last few years since I've been full-time evangelism traveling around, I, I prepare maybe once every few months. But every time I do, I, I, I get teary-eyed too, and I text Josh some emotionally-laden text, thank you for helping me love Jesus and the Bible. And so thank you for helping me love Jesus more In the Bible, I also want to say happy Mother's Day. Moms, thank you. It's a unique sacrifice that moms make that uniquely displays the gospel of how Jesus came to serve us and love us. We love him. We love our moms. We love because we were first loved. 1 John 4.19 now, if you're here and you, you long to have or have had a better relationship with your mother, or you long to be a mother, you need to know that Jesus sees you, and he's with you. The same Jesus who waited breathlessly on a cross to fulfill his purpose, and he knew that that Sunday morning was coming, that same resurrection power will lift you up. If you cling to him. And I think that's a good segue to John chapter 19. If you have it, you can go to chapter 19. You can we're gonna start at the start of the, the, the verse. Because there's no better need and and gift for a mother than to learn about the cross of Jesus who came to save sinners. He saves mom sinners, daughter sinners, daddy sinners, and and son sinners. Jesus came to save us. So let's consider the cross as I'm eight minutes in here. John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Verse 4. Pilate went out again and said, Jesus, see, I am bringing him to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Verse 9, he entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to, authority to release you and authority to crucify, him, crucify you? Jesus answered him, verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over has a greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar." So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment place called the stone pavement. Again, these are uh, verifiable, very specific verifiable and falsifiable facts. In Aramaic called Gabbatha, verse 14, now was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Details, so many specific details. He said to the Jews... Behold, your king, verse 15, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them out to be crucified. And so they took Jesus, and verse 17, went out bearing his own cross in the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Verse 18, when they had crucified him, Him with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. Let's skip forward a little bit, down towards verse 25. Scroll down a little bit in your own Bible. So the soldiers did these things, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw that his mother's and the disciple whom whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, which we know is John who wrote this book, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, this disciple John took her to his home. Last verse, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, sobriety in our hearts to feel. Lord, mouths to proclaim the joy, to see rightly what you see, to feel what you feel, to respond correctly. Amen. Amen. Well, a few months ago, my uncle, Aaron, from San Diego, he's a, a proud alum of San Diego State University. He came to Texas for March Madness. Uh, it's a basketball tournament in college. Um, uh, he came for the Final Four. Uh, his San Diego State Aztecs were, were in the, the finals, and so he came out to Texas, and me and him... Him and I and my son Asa went to the, the final four and we uh we we got seats but we had different seats. See, my Uncle Aaron was in the, the fan section, darn near courtside, in section 133 to be exact. But my son Asa and I were all the way up in section six five zero. This is like a basketball court for ants. 90s movie reference, I think. I Many mean, of y'all from Houston, NRG Stadium is not a basketball arena. And so that game, we we witnessed what vaguely seemed to be like the game of basketball from where we were sitting. Now, I mean, we actually enjoyed our time there. And it was a cool game, San Diego State. It was like not even a competitive game. They, they were losing the whole game, but then a buzzer beater. They won at the end. It was really exciting. And from everywhere we, everyone where we were sitting around had a positive and memorable experience at the Final Four. But then we went to gather my Uncle Aaron to go to our car. And I will say that everyone in his section didn't seem to have a positive experience, It was something categorically different. When we entered into his section and we opened the doors to go gather him, you could palpably feel the euphoria, the triumph. Men hugging, kissing, crying. Awkward. I enter into this and their experience was so different. Now, you should be asking, what does this have to do with John 19? Here's my point, the whole quality and even category of any experience you have, whether you are witnessing the crucifixion of God himself or a small experience in life, which is everything else, the whole category of the experience is determined by your perspective, where you're sitting, who you're sitting with. It's true in March Madness. It's true in everything else in life. So with that said, I want to unpack John 19 by examining three views from the cross. Three views from the cross. The complicit, the subordinate, and the powerless. So first of all, let's examine the first view of the cross that I see in John 19, the complicit. In this story, Pilate, A Roman official with great authority and power seems to be spending all of his energy trying to come up with and convince himself and all others that he has no power in the situation. And he spends virtually none of his time and energy and thought into actually using his power and authority and privilege to do what he should be doing. This isn't unlike my marriage at times where I spend so much good cognitive faculty coming up with excuses for why I'm not doing what I should be doing, why I'm not leading the way I should be leading. But that's another thing. My wife's at a soccer game. Before she meets me at church, I'm glad she's not up front because she'd be saying amen. Anyway, moving on. Verse 4, Pilate, when he went out again, he said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This sounds like a middle schooler in the principal's office. Now I need you to know that he said that I did that, but I need you to know that I said what she said isn't what she said that I said. This is what Pilate sounds like here. At this very point, Pilate is convinced that Jesus is innocent, because John tells us so, and it's like he wants to do Jesus no harm. Y'all in my experience, this is the basic disposition toward Jesus that most people in our culture have. Even those who call themselves Christians. It's like Jesus is this really good guy to whom we should do no harm. You know, let, let's have positive Jesus vibes together, right? He's a good guy. Let's not let's not be mean. Let's let's tolerate him unless it's like things that make me uncomfortable, like my version of Jesus, he's great, he's awesome. But when it comes to risking my life or my reputation to consider whether or not Jesus is more than just that, and the implications of who Jesus said he is and what he came to do and how he came to release me to live life as he knows it for me, that's that's tough. And so Pilate here had a huge dilemma. See, in his conscience, he knew Jesus was innocent, but he feared the crowds. Have we ever been there? Where it's like, look, I, I know Jesus is more than, than he's being made out to be in this situation at my work, in my relationships, and I want to speak up for him. But man, the crowds are so noisy. And I feel with anxiety, maybe what Pilate felt. And then when the whole question around verse eight or nine, the question of whether or not Jesus was king or not, Pilate just felt like, man, my hands are tied. Because in his mind, I mean, he had no choice. There's no, there's no one greater than Caesar. So for someone to be called king, well, that, just, that leaves me no choice in the matter. At least from where he was sitting, from his perspective, his viewpoint, he couldn't see that someone infinitely greater than Caesar was sitting in front of him, head bleeding from a, tr- a crown of thorns twisted over his scalp, Remember, it was Jesus himself who warned Pilate, verse 11, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Above meaning not like Caesar, but God himself. Now, maybe you've never had governmental authority over large swaths of Middle Eastern jurisdiction. If you have, I want to talk to you after this. But, Have you ever, like Pilate, felt so afraid of the crowds that instead of using the authority and the privilege that God gives you, you find yourself sort of passively placating the voice of God and how the Holy Spirit speaks to you? Sometimes this happens to me at bedtime, where it's like my kids know what they're supposed to do to perform their evening ritual, right? But instead, they're pressing in against me, like me and my wife, like this riotous mob. And I find myself reacting to all of their craziness, and I'm just thinking in this moment, it's like, you you made me act like this, kids? Like, (laughs) this is so hard, and I'm passively complicit as if I'm you know, just a prisoner of the moment, and I can't actually lead them differently than the way I'm leading them. I'm trying to convince myself that it's not my fault. And meanwhile, the Holy Spirit is whispering to me, son, I actually gave you power to make peace in this moment. I gave you authority to lead differently. Now, as it relates to our ongoing witness, to Jesus on the public square. In our generation, church may we not be little pilots effectively neutral when Jesus is not calling us to be neutral on certain things, on matters of greatest importance to him. It's like our generation, we love to be take sides on the wrong sides and then when on the sides when Jesus is like okay, You can take a side here. We're like, ah, I don't know. Man, but man, we sure love to take sides when we shouldn't take any side. We should just let that, that conversation go to someone else. We become neutral from our view of the cross so often. Where do you find yourself in this story? Where are you sitting in this whole arena? What's your view of the cross? Is it that of the complicit or maybe... Number two, the the subordinate. I I have to admit, um, I'm inviting you to take take the Word of God personally. Sometimes when we're reading the Bible, the Bible can read us a little bit. And, And I have to admit, this view of the cross I also painfully relate to too much. The subordinate. So they took Jesus, verse 17. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, verse 18. And they crucified him with, with him, two others, and on either side, Jesus between them. The soldiers were just following orders, right? They were just subordinates of Pilate and of Caesar. They, they had to participate in their duties, Uh, For all they knew, they were making the world a safer place. They were just, you know, they were about law and order. You know, no man's above the law, right? They just needed to do their part. Well, that was their view. Or or think of of the Jewish leaders. They were just following, you know, they were soldiers for the Jewish law. They were subordinate participants. Most of the people in this scene we're in a subordinate role. And they really wanted to have the excuse, like, look, I'm just, I'm just doing my part here. I'm just a part of this. I'm not, I'm not the really the one calling the shots here. Think about the intense felt laws, whether written or unwritten in our culture today. There's this unwritten law. You can't say Jesus is the only way to heaven. I'm still shocked that there's any way for me. I know what I've done. I know that I've known the, the young women I've manipulated. I've been a normal, carnal man. And the fact that any God would make a way for me to enter into his holiness is just shocker to me. I came to know Jesus in 1997. My my stepfather who raised me was a uh, a very liberal lawyer. He called it my evangelical phase. A decade or so goes by, and I'm still in the same phase. We're having different conversations, and a new conversation opens up. He gets diagnosed with ALS. He knows he's dying, and yet there's, as much as death is taking its part over his body, there's life starting to happen in his soul. Three months before he dies, he says, I, I really want to to believe that Jesus is my Savior, but I don't want to say words like he's the Savior because it would really, there's like this rule, like I, that would really hurt the feelings of my sisters and my brothers who don't agree with that. So I don't want to say that he's the Savior. I said, you don't want to hurt their feelings. No. No. And you're okay with hurting his feelings. Is is he your savior? Did he really die? Like, did he suffer on the cross for you like he did for me? We had a beautiful moment. I remember it was in a cold day in Oregon, and we're out in a hot tub together, and we were talking. And right there, we prayed a prayer, and I know that something changed with him. And I don't know the conversations that he had with his brothers and sisters, but I've gotten to see a few of them come to faith in Jesus, too, since he died. There's all sorts of rules and laws, and we feel them. And we want to feel like we're subordinate, and we have no choice but to just go along with everything. But what if the soldiers or the Jews, what if their cultural blind spots, their view of the cross... Shielded them from seeing that their subordination to a lesser law in that they were becoming offenders of a greater law. And do we in our culture have any blind spots or our various cultures in America have any blind spots that would cause our view of the cross and of justice and of righteousness, our view to be obscured at all? We crucified Jesus. Peter made this clear 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. Acts 2.36. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you or y'all crucified. He said this to a bunch of Jewish leaders, but it was the soldiers that crucified Jesus. So why is he saying to these leaders, y'all crucified him? Because in the deepest sense, we all crucified Jesus in how we've participated in the virus of sin, dehumanizing others. We say things in our culture like, oh, we're all God's children. We're not all God's children. We're all God's creatures. But we've degenerated by our own sin into something lesser, into his enemies. And he comes to us in dying on the cross He wants to, by his blood, create a new humanity so that we might become his children, God's children. We all crucified him. And he comes to deal with that on the cross. We have not all been dealt the same hand in life, but he came to die on the cross for all of our sin in the various ways that we've seen and participated in the effects of sin? And how often do the pressures to subordinate subordinate ourselves to a lesser view like theirs? How how often does it cause us to be kind of soldiers for a lesser king in how we live our lives, how we engage in economy, in relationship? We become complicit and subordinate. But there's a third view here, and that is the view of the powerless. I want you to look closely at this third group of people and what they were doing, and specifically even what they were not doing. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. That's a lot of Marys. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Verse 27, then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that time, the disciple took her home to his own home. There's no greater thing on Mother's Day than to heartily consider what the very mother of our Savior was doing in the six hours that he was suffering Excruciating pain on the cross. What were they doing in this moment, this group of people? They were doing actually nothing. Nothing but grieving and watching. Even their, even their hoping was fading away. They, they could never go to anyone else and say, you know what? I went through hard things, but I'm glad I hoped I don't see that here. They were just loving their Jesus from the most dejected and powerless place imaginable. And yet, even in their grieving, what was Jesus doing? Hanging on a cross. In that group of people, Jesus was creating a family, a forever family. In this very moment, Jesus, his mom, Mary, went from being his biological mother to being a child of God adopted by the Father, the Heavenly Father. At the foot of the cross, when we feel powerless, when we don't have answers, we can have a collective trust in God. Even when we feel hopeless and powerless, like it's That six hours feels like it's been like our last seven years of our lives. We're just, it seems like we're just watching suffering. We don't see the reasoning in it. We might not know. You might not ever know. Maybe a lot of your suffering that you've brought in here today, you confess your mistrust of God, but maybe the suffering won't go away right away. Maybe you'll never know until heaven. You'll never know why, but today you can know the one who knows. From your view of the cross, when things seem dark, you can see his light in a dark place. These three Marys and John didn't have all the answers, but they had, they had Jesus in their view of the, the foot of the cross. And at, at the foot of the cross, the foot of the cross is where family is formed. We're not just fellow members of an organization. You're not not an audience, and this is, even though we're using a stage for a school right now, this is not a stage. This is a pulpit where another brother is proclaiming our mutual Savior. And you're worshiping God when another brother's up here with a guitar. Bro, it sounds great, by the way. Um... What are you doing when you're standing and, you know, you, you know, the wives in here are saying to their husbands, you're sounding terrible is what you're, no. Sounds good to Jesus and your mom. You're worshiping through song. What are you doing right now? You're worshiping through listening to the word of God. We're family that has been purchased by a greater blood than the blood that we come from. And so are the triumphs, of our past or the hurt of our past will never define us because the triumphs will fade away and the hurts they don't have to derail us into despair when the crowns and the thorns are brought to jesus he creates a forever family and we are the greatest thing that we could ever be called we are his, see, when we come together, he forms something beautiful. And here's what I love about Christian discipleship. When I'm struggling, when my kids won't go to sleep, and I feel just like I've got no energy left, and I have a bad attitude, and and uh, whatever it is, and I go to another brother, whether it's in a Sunday morning gathering, you know, I've I've done this in the middle of worship after or I go to a small group. This is the beauty of Christian discipleship for thousands of years. When I confess my struggle to another brother, in that very moment of confession, it is no longer my struggle, it's ours. If you confess your sin to one another and pray for one another, you will be healed. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's power at the foot of the cross. And so whether today we are in the the complicit viewpoint or subordinate or powerless, you need to know that Jesus really is alive. He died on the cross for our sin. He was laid in a tomb. A tomb that we can go to and see today. It's empty. Jesus isn't there. He's at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. Jesus is alive. And that assertion is to be to us either a great source of hope or a great source of warning. Depending on our viewpoint of the cross of Jesus a great source of hope if Jesus is my Lord and Savior and I know him as who he is and I unknow everything else that would keep me from that knowledge of him. And a source of warning if I know him as anything lesser than who he truly is. And why is that? Again, why why did Jesus have to die? This, one of the great singularities of our faith is that every other religion, even like the religion of, uh, of, of uh, secularism, which is a religion of non-religion, every religion and ideal of humanity is essentially we better ourselves. We get to the ideal. We get to heaven. Uh, Buddhism, we, we, we find our oneness. We get to God. We do things to get there. But our faith is a singularity in that it tells of a, a story of a God who comes to us when we could never have gotten to him. And he brings heaven to us by restoring us, canceling out the debt of our sin, and giving us new life. And he said on the cross, it is finished. And and let's not disagree with him by any so-called humble acts of contrition. Let's receive and let's live from that place. If you feel powerless... There's power in him. God takes the foolish things of the earth to shame the wise. God's power is made perfect in human weakness. If we can come together with our struggle, with our sin, he can make a great thing out of that. We can grieve. We can grieve uh, the the cross. We can grieve how we've continued to, to contribute to sin, and yet we can celebrate our Savior. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we grieve. We grieve our sin even as we rejoice in you. We we grieve the ongoing effect of sin and how it I, I hurt feelings in how I act with my family and friends often. But Lord, my grieving is is with hope because you said it's finished. You're at my right hand. And today, Lord, as we celebrate mothers, we celebrate how you've made us into children. Therefore, motherhood is not wasted. Fatherhood is not wasted. We can see you and see your power. Lord, if we confess and release and if we receive, Lord, let us taste, even in our our pain, taste and see that you are good. Amen. Amen.